For those of you who have been here the last several weeks, you know that we've been looking at Paul's letter to Titus. And so this is a great little image up here. Um, you can see there's a blueprint of the church behind the, the name Titus. And that's really what the, this letter is all about. We've uh, been looking for the last four weeks at what Paul has had to, to say to Titus about how to bring order, how to build, how to construct the church on Crete. And uh, that assignment that Titus has been given to bring order to the church on Crete is anything but easy. The culture on Crete, if you guys have been here the last few weeks, you'll remember that it's a pretty rough culture. Crete was widely known in the Roman world for treachery, for sexual debauchery, for dishonesty, for violence. And yet, in the midst of all of this, and in the midst of this crazy culture, the church was actually growing. The gospel was going forth. But it was also under attack from false teaching and from false teachers. And that false teaching was creating division, and it was threatening to turn people away from the truth of the gospel, which is what false teaching always does. Now, last week, we looked at chapter 2 of Titus, and uh, we, in particular, looked, out, uh, looked at a clear aspirational list of traits for older men in the church. Uh, so what we see is that uh, that letter told Titus, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love, and in steadfastness. This week, I'm going to try and unpack similar aspirational traits for older women in the church. And even though we'll mostly be focusing on verse 3, I'm actually going to read pretty much the entire passage. So if you will, follow along with me as I read Titus chapter 2, and I'm going to be looking at verses 2 through 15. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For, and this is the why do we do all that clause, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's take a moment, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that in your word, you have revealed to us um, and are revealing to us who you are and who your son Jesus is and who it is that you created us to be. And so, Father, I ask and I pray that you would allow your word to trickle down through our brains and into our hearts, that you might not just change the way that we think, but that you might change the way that we feel, that you might change the way that we live. And Father, I pray that as we surrender to you as the author of creation, the author of all reality, I pray, Father, that we would flourish. Father, I pray that even this church body would flourish as we surrender to you, our good Father, and to your Son, Jesus, 
our Savior. We pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So when I was just a kid, a little boy, there was a little nursery rhyme that girls would sometimes sing song at boys sort of as a cut down, right? And so let me read this little, this little uh, nursery rhyme. It's this. What are little boys made of? What are little boys made of? Snips and snails and puppy dogs' tails. That's what little boys are made of. That was a 19th century insult, by the way. It was meant to, be, to sort of insinuate that the boys are gross. What are little girls made of? What are little girls made of? Sugar and spice and everything nice. That's what little girls are made of. Now, again, this is a 19th century nursery rhyme. We don't know who wrote it. It was pretty widely quoted, again, in my childhood and probably the many years preceding my childhood. And it assumes somehow that boys and girls are fundamentally different. Now, my guess is that such assumptions would be scoffed at today. And my guess is that even as I read that little poem, probably in your mind, probably some of you got a little bit uh, triggered, a little bit frustrated. You had some questions that arose. You probably thought of some counterexamples very quickly. And that's fair to think about those counterexamples. There's a woman named Deborah So. She is a neuroscientist and recently she wrote a book called The End of Gender, debunking the myths about sex and identity in our society. And uh, she has uh, written and spoken widely, again, as a neuroscientist on these topics ranging from sexuality to gender. She's written for Harper's Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, LA Times, Quillette, The Globe, New York Magazine, and The Scientific American, just to name a few. She's written all over the place. She's been interviewed on numerous mainstream outlets like NPR, the BBC, the Washington Post, USA Today, the list goes on and on and on. Now, recently, she came under fire for being critical of gender transitioning for children, but more relevant to our topic today, she very clearly states in her book that gender is not a social construct, but rather the brains of men and women, even in infancy, are quite different. So she's talking as a neuroscientist, and she's saying gender and sexuality, neither of those are socially constructed, which is largely what the world says today. In fact, she says the brains of little boys and little girls in infancy are different. Now, we could go much, much further into her work, but suffice it to say that her view of gender goes against the popular culture's view. In fact, that's one of those things you can kind of get canceled for these days. It's the same pitfall that Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling stumbled into recently by asserting, basically arguing for uh, a feminist agenda that sex is biological, right? And so the battle going on today really has very little to do with Christians. It's much more sort of in the secular realm. Currently, our broader culture, that is the culture of the West, our view of sex and gender is largely determined by our culture's embrace of two different ideologies amongst several others. Those two different ideologies are postmodernity and critical theory. Postmodernity and critical theory. Postmodernity essentially argues there's no such thing as truth and that we can't know, much less speak about, objective reality. No truth, and we cannot know objective reality. Classic postmodernists argue that truth is a social construct. They're sometimes called poststructuralists. Although, I would argue that as the late atheist thinker Richard Dawkins once did, that no one is a postmodernist at 30,000 feet, right? So Richard Dawkins, atheist thinker, says, you can say this, that uh, truth is a social construct, but when you're at 30,000 feet, you're just screaming. 
In other words, if you fall out of an airplane at 30,000 feet, no one says, this is just a social construct. This is just a social construct. Does that make sense? Postmodernity, however, would argue that gender is simply a social construction, okay? Now, the reason that I'm going into this is we're all very much pickled in, in sort of the broader culture. And so it's part of the reason when people talk about gender, we get a little bit buzzy. We get a little bit sort of on the defensive. And part of it's because postmodernity teaches that there's no such thing as gender. It's just a social construct. That's number one. Number two is this idea or philosophy called critical theory, not critical race theory, but critical theory. Critical theory overlaps with postmodernity in that it argues that social constructs are created for the purpose of maintaining power by those in power. Okay, so let me say that one more time. Critical theory argues that social constructs, whether that be gender, sexuality, there's any number of different things they might talk about, that those things are created by people in power in order to maintain their power, to oppress other people. So critical theory teaches that the appropriate response to such constructs is to overthrow them and to overthrow those who created them. We can see how this idea plays out in regards to logic, right? A lot of times people talk about logic being a social construction of Western uh, people in order to suppress others. Uh, we can see it in regards to the history of America. We can even see it in regards to science. There's actually a movement right now in our broader culture called shut down STEM, shut down STEM, because their perspective is that even the STEM fields of science are things that are constructed by those in power to suppress others. So without very much effort, you can see how both of these two philosophical systems impact the broader culture's view of gender, right, of masculinity and of femininity. Postmodernity would say gender is just a social construct. Critical theory would say gender is a social construct intentionally created to oppress women, and it needs to be overthrown. And so really these, basically critical theory started back in the 20s or 30s, and uh, postmodernity largely became popularized, you know, roughly at the end of the 1970s. And so both of those have been floating around in our culture for a long time. Let me say this, and I want you to hear me say this. If we had a little more time, we could talk about how there's actually some truth in each of these concepts. That may be surprising for you to hear me say that. There's actually some truth in each of these concepts. Let me make a quick argument. Postmodernity. In postmodernity, again, it's, it argues that truth is a social construct, but there is a sense in which there is some relativity around masculinity or femininity. For example, it looks different to be a female in Guatemala than it does in Manhattan, right? Like there's some different particulars there. And regarding critical theory, institutions throughout history have indeed oppressed women, and institutions have indeed oppressed people of color. Now, the problem with each of these philosophical systems is that when they're pushed too far, they both reach the point of absurdity, right? And the postmodernists, the true classic postmodernists, acknowledge that. They basically say that we question even our own perspectives. Uh, the critical theorists do not do that. The other thing I would say is that either of these systems, if either of these systems dictates primarily how you and I see the world, gender and race and politics and all of these different things, but if we let that be a, the primary lens through which we view the world, then we're allowing something other than God and his word to have the final say about the world that he created. Does that make sense? We have to be careful to remember that we as Christians are called to be people of God's word. At Seven Hills, we are unapologetically committed to the Bible as the primary rule of life and faith. 
As I say over and over again, the idea of biblical authority means we listen to God's word, especially when we don't like what it has to say. Let me read that one more time. We here at Seven Hills Fellowship believe in biblical authority. We believe the Bible is true and has the authority to tell us what to do. Therefore, we listen to God's word, especially when we don't like what it has to say. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't need to be interpreted, and sometimes that's difficult. Um, That also doesn't mean that there's not truth in science or there's not truth in philosophical systems. Rather, it means that we interpret those in light of Scripture. Or, as 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So having made more than a few qualifications for the purpose of saying, hey, you're going to feel some things buzzing in you this morning because it's in your culture, let me jump really quickly here into Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women. So Paul began chapter 2 with an image of what a godly older man should look like, and now he gives a picture of what a godly older woman should look like. Like last week, let me give you a few qualifications. Much of what we'll talk about today will focus on women, but if you look at these godly qualities outlined, you'll see that they apply to men as well. So if you're not in the exact demographic spoken of today, still listen up because we've all got a lot to learn. We begin chapter 2, verse 3, by reading that older women should be reverent, that they should be reverent in their behavior in particular. The word translated reverent is a Greek word which means becoming that which is sacred or holy. Let me say that one more time. The word that's translated here reverent means becoming that which is sacred or holy. I actually love that description. Think about certain holy moments that we experience. Maybe it's the sacred moment looking out over the ocean when lightning descends down from the clouds and it strikes the surface of the ocean. The beauty sometimes is so intense that it's, it just sort of takes your breath away. Or maybe it's standing in the Rocky Mountains, or if you're really lucky, in the Alps, and beholding the beauty of creation. Or think about the moment when a bride appears in the doorway of the church. Everything just stands still for a moment because it's a sacred moment. Or think about when After nine months of heartburn, sleepless nights, and a long and painful labor, the moment that that baby is finally born and placed into her mother's arms, that's a holy moment. Putting that baby to bed when she's an infant, when she's a toddler, when she's a middle schooler, and praying over her while she sleeps, that God would keep her safe, that God would be with her, that God would shape her, shape in her a beautiful heart. Those are moments that are beautiful, they're sacred, they're holy. Older women should live lives that are characterized by reverence. Their behavior should be marked by sacredness and holiness. How does someone reach the point of such reverence in life? We reach that point when we realize that every square inch of life is holy. Going to work is holy. Making dinner is holy. Helping with homework is holy. Walking with a friend is holy. Drinking coffee and reading in the morning is holy. There's no aspect of life that is not holy. All of life is holy. Older women are reverent in behavior because through the years they have fought the good fight. They have run the race and they have kept the faith. Older believers should have an internal solidity, a weight that comes from walking with God in every moment of life. The church... I would argue our church desperately needs the presence 
and the gravitas of these sacred women. Older women are to be reverent. The second point that we see here about these older women is that it goes on to say that older women in the church should not be slanderers. Just to clarify, slander is different from gossip because whereas gossip might actually be true, slander is saying something that you know to be false. And there are at least two and two and a half options here in terms of interpretation. The first is that Paul's admonition is particular just to the women in the Cretan church as opposed to women in general. Remember that Crete was so widely known for dishonesty that the word kretizo was a euphemism for lying across the Roman world. That's a pretty bad reputation. In light of this, this view is definitely possible. Or it could be this admonition is given because slander might be a more common issue for women than it is for men. Or it might be some combination of the two. There's actually quite a bit of research at this point about social media and its disparate impact on boys and girls. Most of us have read some of these studies on how social networks and social media is impacting kids. Since the advent of social media and the iPhone, depression and anxiety have both skyrocketed. So ask anybody that you know, works for a college or um, is a counselor, it's you know, gone through the roof. Since 2014, rates of self-harm among boys have gone up by about 12%, but for females in the 14 to 23 age range, it's gone up about 70%. What could be the cause for such disparate impact? NYU psychologist Jonathan Haidt makes the point that in this online era, boys are much more likely to go online to play video games and maybe to look at some things that they shouldn't be looking at, both of which have their own negative consequences. Girls, however, are much more likely to spend their time on social media platforms like Instagram and Snapchat. As part of his study as a psychologist, Haidt has done research on dominance hierarchies, so a dominance hierarchy, you know, knowing who fits where in the pecking order. And he finds that males determine hierarchy largely through physicality. So the strongest or the most athletic guy is typically at the top. If you remember junior high boys, you remember, depending on where you were in that dominance hierarchy, how great it was or how horrible it was. Females, on the other hand, according to height, determine hierarchy through relational means. And one of the primary tools that he talks about that females use to gain standing and to knock someone else down that ladder is character assassination or slander. Right? And so there's a movie called Mean Girls that would be an example of that. If you guys have ever seen it, I have not. Although I think I used it as a sermon illustration one time. But for the women in the room, if you were a junior high student or a, you know, whatever age group, maybe, maybe you're familiar with this character assassination. Maybe you're familiar with the way that dominance hierarchies work amongst women. According to Height, this is largely to blame for the hockey stick rise in anxiety and depression in Gen Z females. You guys can look that up, make your own minds up. To be fair, here in Titus 2, Paul doesn't specifically address whether this is particularly a female temptation, but he clearly states that older women are not to engage in slander. Slander has no place in the family of God. Instead, we are told, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Corruption, obviously, is sort of where things degrade. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. Now, let me qualify this and say this doesn't mean that we're not supposed to say hard things because as some of us in this room know, sometimes the hardest things to say are actually the most loving. Older women and all believers in the family of God should speak the truth in love. Older women are to be reverent. They're not to slander. And then the third thing we see here is the passage goes on to say that older women are not to be slaves to much wine. So alcoholism was just as much of a danger in the ancient Near East as it is today. 
The Bible regularly condemns drunkenness, and it's easy to see why. Over 50% of sexual assaults list alcohol as a contributing factor. 40% of people in prison are in prison for violent crimes that were committed under the influence of alcohol at the time of their crime. I'm a sports guy. Every single time you read a headline on ESPN or CBS Sports, there's you know, some guy that gets in trouble for a bar fight or running from the police or who knows what. And about nine times out of 10, the story begins with at 2 a.m. outside X bar, right? Again, it's an issue. Since alcohol is a depressant, it's used by many people to numb feelings of anxiety and sadness. During the oppressive reign of communism in Russia, there was a saying that vodka is a time machine. Vodka is a time machine. In other words, for some people, life is so hard and it's so depressing that people use alcohol as a, as a way to fast forward just a little bit. Current research in the West shows that men are about two times as likely to meet the criteria for alcoholism than women are. For some reason, however, this admonition is given to the women in the church of Crete. These older women in the church are not prohibited from consuming wine, that's not what it says, but rather they're warned against becoming slaves to it. This warning, while particularly given to the women in the church in Crete, should be heeded by all followers of Jesus at all times and in all places. Scripture very clearly tells us, do not get drunk with wine in which there is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. To channel Tim Keller, anything that controls you more than God does is an idol, and idols will always destroy us, right? Anything that controls you more than God does is an idol, and idols will always destroy you. They'll work for a little while, but in the end, every idol creates chaos, destroying the people and the things that we love the most. So older women are to be controlled not by wine but rather by the love of God, the grace of the gospel, and the power of the Holy Spirit that is in them. Next thing, older women are to teach what is good. Teach what is good. The Greek word used here is kalodidaskalos. Kalodidaskalos. It's a compound word. The second half of the word is didaskalos, and we get our word didactic from this Greek word. It simply means to teach. The first half of the word, however, is kalos, which literally means beautiful. So I love the idea that these older women are supposed to be teachers of that which is beautiful, right? They're to teach that which is beautiful. Though it can mean physical beauty, I don't think that's the primary idea here. The idea is that these older women are to teach others about what it means to live a beautiful life, to live a beautiful life. We could easily go down the rabbit hole here and talk about gender differences and how those might actually reflect being created in God's image. But suffice it to say for the moment that these older women are to give us a glimpse of this beautiful life. Question is, what is a beautiful life? Some people's minds turn immediately to picturesque images of hospitality from Southern living or from garden and gun. Like you think about maybe a back porch at night with those little strung up lights, you know, and a beautiful scene. Or maybe your mind turns to an image of a life filled with friends and with family living in harmony apart from any particular visual aesthetic. Or maybe your mind goes somewhere more spiritual and your thoughts turn back to Scripture and you think about the uh, verses that say, blessed are the poor. Maybe you think about the Beatitudes. Or you think about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, etc., etc. I think each could be argued that those are part of what it means to live a beautiful life. The beauty of our environment does matter. Think about the temple that God commanded to be constructed. 
Think about the beauty of thousands of vibrantly colored fish hovering around a coral reef in the Caribbean. God created that. Or think about the beauty of the cloud forests in Costa Rica buzzing with hummingbirds that look like levitating Christmas lights. Beauty should matter to us because it matters to God. Relationships should matter as well. Jesus could have landed on Mars Hill, preached for a few weeks, and then gone back to heaven, but he didn't. He created a loving and committed community by calling people from various backgrounds to walk with him and to give their lives for one another and for the gospel. Obviously, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are part of a beautiful life as well. Surely it can be argued that each of these examples are part of this beautiful life, but a closer reading of the passage gives us a more particular answer. It says this, they are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. These older women in the church are to teach what is good so that they can train the younger women to live godly lives. We're actually going to talk about that second part of the verse next week. I would guess that if the church sent out a questionnaire to every woman at Seven Hills Fellowship between the ages of, say, 13 or 17 and 35, and asked if they'd been discipled by an older woman, most women would respond that they hadn't been. And then if in that survey you followed it up with a question asking if they would like to be discipled by a mature, mature godly woman, most would say that they would desire that. Most people I've spoken to long to be trained for life by someone older and wiser than they are. That's true for men, it's true for women. The church should be a home where godly older women teach the younger women about this beautiful life. It'd be very easy to end the sermon here. Go do it. Older women, go train the younger women. Go live a holy and reverent life. Don't slander. Don't fall prey to alcoholism. Each of those would be a fair admonition, but we can't forget that the foundation, the basis for this beautiful life is that we live because we have been loved. We live a certain way because we've been loved. Listen again to the foundation for the life that God calls us to live, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works." Older women are to live the beautiful life because of the gospel. That's true for them, but it's true for everyone as well. We've all been redeemed. We've all been given grace. We have a great Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves us and laid down his life for us. And it's because of those things, the truth of the gospel, that we're called to live this beautiful and godly life. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. Father, we pray that in a world filled with amazing amounts of noise and any number of different truth claims, that we would hear your voice loud and clear. And Father, I pray that as we hear your voice, we would listen to your voice, that we would surrender to your voice. Father, I pray that you would protect us from the evil one. I pray, Father, that you would help us to listen to the voice of our good shepherd. We pray these things now. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.